Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week I'm joined by Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz is a famed Republican pollster, strategist, focus group shepherd, advisor to presidents, and omnipresent political commentator. He's currently in Nashville, Tennessee, where tonight President Donald Trump and Joe Biden will face off in the final presidential debate. I called him up to discuss his criticism of the Trump campaign, the state of the presidential race, the future of polling, and whether the Republican Party can survive Trumpism. Frank, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. How can I help? I want to start off with some comments you made this week that were fairly critical of the Trump campaign and caused a bit of a stir. Uh, I'll, I'll read out those comments now, if you'll allow me. Uh, you said, I've never seen a campaign more miscalibrated than the Trump campaign. Frankly, his staff ought to be brought up on charges of political malpractice. It is the worst campaign I've ever seen, and I've been watching them since 1980. They're, they're on the wrong issues. They're on the wrong message. They've got their heads up their asses. Your main gripe seems to be that the campaign is fully focused on the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, which you don't see as a, a potent election message. Could you explain to us a little bit what is wrong or what you see wrong with the Trump campaign right now? No one cares that they're misfocused, that they're mistargeted, and that their tone is off. They have won all the Trump voters are going to win. And I know that, that their philosophy is how do we turn out as many people who like us as opposed to trying to go for the center. By, by comparison, Joe Biden has completely gone to the center, has basically ignored his hardcore people. And that's one of the reasons why his numbers have increased and Donald Trump's numbers have not. That there, you can only turn out, you can only get so much blood from a stone. And I believe that both candidates should be fighting for that middle block, that both candidates should be trying to expand their core audience. And the Trump campaign fundamentally disagrees with that. And I think that they're going to end up short. That's point number one. Point number two is that this is not what the American people want. And some of this has nothing to do with campaign strategy and everything to do with public opinion and public expectations. The American people have a right to know the strategy behind fighting COVID. They have a right to know the strategy behind bringing back those jobs that were lost. They have a right to know the strategy behind dealing with China and, and foreign policy. And you don't get there by focusing on Hunter Biden's laptop. I think it's the wrong issue politically. I think it's the wrong issue um, uh, ethically. I think it's the wrong issue in every possible way. And clearly the Trump campaign doesn't agree because they came after me for making those statements. And I'm going to be curious to see what happens tonight at the debate, whether they're listening or whether they are just doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. I promise you that if that is the focus of their response over the next 48 hours, then Donald Trump will not win this election. And so I, I agree with you that the president and the campaign don't seem to be showing a sign of changing the message from Hunter Biden and the allegations that Joe Biden is corrupt, which it doesn't seem to be a winning issue in the polls, at least, given that he's been pushing the this idea for years that, that Joe Biden is corrupt and Biden is still more popular than he is. Now, this week, he spent a lot of the week going after Leslie Stahl, the host of 60 Minutes, for an interview that she conducted with him that's set to air on Sunday. Um, I, I get the sense that, the, you know, the debate is tonight that that's going to be the real focus of Trump during this debate. It's going to be Hunter Biden, corruption, and I guess sort of firing back at the media for being biased against him um, with a big focus on Leslie Stahl. Do you, do you expect that to be uh, Trump's focus tonight in Nashville? 
I could even see it is actually within the realm of possibility that Donald Trump walks out of tonight's debate as well. And that Leslie Stahl was just a dress rehearsal for what he does on the national stage. And it doesn't work. Now, I agree with him. And here's the hardest part for me right now is that there are some Republicans who believe that I'm a traitor. There are some Democrats who believe I can't be trusted, that I'm in this weird situation where I'm not trying to appeal to Republicans or Democrats. I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm trying to present the factual information of where the voters stand at this point. I have friends on both sides of the aisle. I've dealt with uh, Republicans and Democrats, and there is no space for somebody like me. There is no space for someone in the middle. And there's no space for someone who, and I know that this is a, a media-focused website, a media-focused uh, podcast. I'm trying to be the advocate for the voters when everybody else has chosen sides. And it's, clearly, it's not where I come from. It's not how I initially entered into this, just as George Stephanopoulos was a partisan Democrat, just as uh, Tim Russert was a partisan Democrat. I was a partisan Republican, but we change and we evolve. And I'm trying to do it in an accurate and respectful way. I, I just, it's very hard when you're attempting to cover somebody in an election we are, where we are so divided where we are so resentful of the other side and we don't listen to the other side and we don't care about the other side. So when I present these focus groups, I know we're going to talk about it. When I present them, if they present, if they comment against Donald Trump, then the Trump people go nuts rather than listening and learning from them. And if they, if they articulate something against Joe Biden, then, then the Biden people go nuts. There's something here to learn from the public, to listen to the public. And I say to every journalist who's listening, check your partisanship at the door and you're not doing it. This has not been a stellar campaign for a lot of people who I know very well. And I expect more from them that they think that their first responsibility is to hold Donald Trump accountable. That's actually not the case. Their first responsibility is to give the public the ability to understand what's going on. And Donald Trump is not always wrong. But you wouldn't know that by reading the New York Times or by watching CNN. And I, I don't think that that's cool. I don't think that that's helpful where we stand right now, that both sides need to be held accountable, that both sides need to be challenged. And it's just such a difficult environment to do this in. Yeah, I, I agree. The, you know, and I find that interesting because you have worked for Republican presidents and politicians for decades. Uh, you've advised them on the will of the voters, the potency of policies, et cetera. And I, I recently read a kind of funny comment that you gave to Politico. You got asked what it means in the Trump era to be a Republican, and you had a little bit of trouble answering. Um, your, uh, your quote was, I, I don't have a history of dodging questions, but I don't know how to answer that. There's no consistent philosophy. You can't say it's about making America great again at a time of COVID and economic distress and social unrest. It's just not credible. Could you expand on that? Uh, there was such a great question. It's from Tim Alberta. Mm. And there was a pregnant pause. I didn't know what to say to him. And I don't want to give the typical fluff answer. It's the same thing I'm doing with you right now. I will acknowledge, I will embrace even, how my own personal politics have changed over recent years, and particularly over the last year. I had a stroke in January. And, and it rewired my, my brain. 
And I know it did. And I'm not asking, I don't want sympathy. Let me put it in a much more blunt way. Don't be sympathetic. Just listen to, and don't listen to what I have to say. Listen to my bringing the voters, listen to their voice, understand what they are saying. Because if they did, they would not be doing it in the same tone, the same ugliness that they represent the candidates. And by the way, it, I, I, I respect the journalist profession more now than I ever have because of how difficult it is. But we have to ask them to, to reach a higher level of credibility. We have to ask them to allow editors to actually say to them, no, this looks like a Joe Biden for president article, that you have to re redo this, that you're not writing an op-ed piece on the front page, you're writing what really happens and you need a balanced approach. And I don't think it's happening. Look, there's one newsroom in particular, and it's one that I've been affiliated with, that simply does not want any piece, does not believe that anything should be pro-Trump in any possible way or even neutral, that they hate the president and the Republicans so much that if you are not hostile to him, then you're not doing your job. In fact, there are two newsrooms that are like this right now, and I'm not going to name them because I'm not going to start a public fight on your podcast. <laughs> that's not the right job either. Accountability means being straightforward, does not mean taking a position. Let the readers take the position. Let the viewers take the position. And when I was asked that question, I didn't have an answer because everything that came to my head in the seconds that I have to respond, everything that, that came to me just sounded so ridiculously trite or phony that I just decided to tell the truth be candid. And I have no answer. The Republican position on immigration has changed. The Republican position on trade has changed. The Republican position more than any other issue on how much we spend has changed. When I was a kid and, and when I originally became a Republican, the deficit was a big issue. The debt was a big issue. Today, nobody cares. And that's not the Republican Party that I knew. And so I don't know where we're headed. And a lot of it has to do with what candidates step forward after this election, whether Donald Trump uh, surprises pundits and surprises me and actually gets elected, reelected. But this is not the same Republican Party that I joined when I was uh, when I was 18 years old. And now Tim Alberta is uh, the author of that political story. His conclusion in it was that the Trump uh, Trump has basically turned the Republican Party into something of a cult of personality. Um, and that's why it's so difficult for a lot of people to answer this question of what the Republican Party represents now, because it's really it really is Trumpism. Um, and Trumpism is very hard to define because it, it changes so much and it's not doesn't follow orthodoxy or anything like that. Do you agree that that Trump has turned the Republican Party into something of a cult of personality? I, I, I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't in that I know what that phrase means and I know how it sounds. Sure. Because I'm a language guy. But the overall intent of that comment, has Donald Trump reshaped the Republican Party in his own image? The answer is absolutely yes. Cult of personality, no. Reshaped it in his image? Yes, it has. And so there's a tonal difference now than there used to be. There's an ideological difference now than it used to be. Ronald Reagan and his definition of the GOP essentially was the Republican definition from 1976, from the end of that convention, because even though he lost the nomination, he really did win the party at that convention. 
from 1976, and that lasted until 2016. And Reagan's been gone for so long now, but it really was his party, and it's not his party anymore. I feel like uh, like it's the famous Leslie Gore song, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Well, I think there are gonna be a lot of people crying on election night, and where we go from here, I don't know. I don't know whether voters will look at this and say, this is a blip and let's go back, or whether they will say, I like the party as it is now and let's go mm -hmm. forward. I can't. I still can't answer that after after six weeks of thinking about that question. Do Do you want Trump to be reelected? It's not. And and I ask you to accept my answer. Hmm. I want to be accurate. I want to get this election right. I am more interested in bringing people, bringing their voices forward to accurately present why they're undecided and to accurately represent a Biden voter and a Trump voter than I am about my own point of view. I just want to be right because this is it for me. I, there, I, I don't know if I'll be around four years from now. I know that my health issues, I, once again, had an impact on what I think and what I present. And all that I care about is that I got this election correct. If, if it ends up that I didn't, then I will have a mea culpa I'll have to do, and I'm very eager to do it. But uh, on election night, I just want to be right. Now, in, in, since you bring that up, let's talk about polling a little bit. Uh, Joe Biden is now the clear favorite to win the 2020 election. Uh, it's now 12 days away. He's maintained a pretty consistent edge in many of the key states uh, that Trump carried in 2016 and is, of course, way ahead in national polling averages. How do you think we should read the polls and uh, all the early voting information that we have and sort of understand the race as it stands right now? Exactly as you just presented it, mm -hmm. that it is now Joe Biden's to lose, which he could, that Donald Trump made a not just a strategic error, potentially a fatal error by not participating in that second presidential debate, the town hall that there are so few undecideds left and so few people that acknowledge they could switch who they support, that Trump would have to win 100% of them to get back in this race. Now, I believe that there is a so-called shy Trump voter, just not nearly as much as the Trump people want to believe. Uh, Joe Biden's run a better campaign than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, and everyone's defined Trump. There's the undecided, and I think this is important, because I'm watching the news media criticize undecided voters for being low information voters or irrelevant. And that's now the cool thing to do. You're one of the cool kids. If you say that, oh, these undecideds are idiots. No, they're actually not. And one of them made a very good point that you can look at Donald Trump's policies and say, there's some stuff here that I like. You can look at Joe Biden's persona and say, I appreciate that because he empathizes, he really cares, but dislike Trump for how he communicates and dislike Biden because he's not being forthcoming on, on where he stands on so many of these issues like the Supreme Court, which really does matter. You can prefer Trump's policies and Biden's persona and absolutely be undecided over which is more important. And it's not only a legitimate point of view, it's actually a smart point of view. And I resent these editorialists and these reporters who are now condemning them because they haven't jumped on the, the Biden train yet. Mm. No, there are reasons to oppose 
Joe Biden, just as there are reasons to oppose Donald Trump. And these undecideds are trying to decide whether Trump's persona that they don't like is more tolerable than Biden's policy positions, which they simply don't know. And that's Biden's campaign's fault. And they're doing it deliberately because they want to be able to get the center and the left. Let's face it, if Joe Biden says, I'm not going to pack the court or I'm not going to end the filibuster, if he says those things, the progressives are going to get mad at him with just days to go before the election. So Biden is trying to avoid issues. I wish that the media were holding him accountable. I wish the media were doing a better job. Everything that Donald Trump says, he gets jumped on, which is a legitimate approach because some of the stuff he says is ridiculous. But some of the stuff that Joe Biden doesn't say doesn't say is just as important as what Joe Biden does say. And the level of coverage, all you had to do was look at the town hall meetings. I was really mad at Savannah Guthrie. I met her a couple of times. I don't know her really well. I've known the other Today host much better. But hers was an inquisition of Donald Trump on one network. And the Stephanopoulos interview of Joe Biden was what a town hall is supposed to be, which is real people asking real questions of their presidential candidate. Savannah got three, NBC wasn't a town hall. That was, that was a, a takedown. That's not helpful to the electoral process and it's not fair. And Donald Trump contributed to it, but it was clear that that was the format that uh, Guthrie was gonna do. I know she was under pressure, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether your colleagues are giving you shit or not. Mm. What matters is that you do your job to the best of your ability. And her job that night was not to rip apart Donald Trump, no matter what he said. It was to allow the public and encourage the public to get a chance to ask their questions of their president of the United States, and she did not do that job well. Do, do you not think sometimes, though, that it's the mismatch in how President Trump is treated versus other politicians are treated by the press is sometimes warranted when, you know, I, I, part of the, the some of the things that Savannah Guthrie was asking Trump about was him spreading conspiracy theories about who killed bin Laden and, you know, QAnon, uh, embracing QAnon as a, uh, as a conspiracy theory, which are things that no other politician would do. And at a certain point, I think those tough questions and and sort of being confronted at town halls about spreading misinformation like that is justified. Uh, But you do that at the end of the interview, not at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You don't come out guns blazing and spend the first 20 minutes and 40 seconds, I timed it, just tearing them apart and then going to your first audience question. So you you raise a really good point and it's a correct point that the media has the responsibility, and I've said this even on this interview again and again, accountability is essential. Hold people accountable for what they say or what they don't say. But it's not fair to rip into him for 20 minutes and then go to the first question when it is billed on in everything as a town hall. That's not what a town hall is. And I just wish that that these two competing and our, and our focus group is going back and forth between them. And I'll note that Joe Biden's got a higher rating and you don't hear Donald Trump acknowledging that, that mm-hmm. Biden got a higher rating. And you also, I agree with you that Donald Trump causes much of the problems that he faces. He, he insults reporters and we've never had a president who's done that before. We've also never had a president who's been so condemned by the media before. And I think it's a chicken and an egg. Trump treats them badly, they treat him badly. Trump treats them even worse, they treat him even worse. And then we now reach the point where he's never gonna get a fair break 
but he's contributed to that by how he responds and what he does. He is responsible. There's an ugly phrase that I'm not going to use, but he is responsible for so much of the ugliness. And yet they're responsible for him legitimately saying that he's not getting a fair break. Sure. And uh, just one more quick thing about the polls. What do you think it's going to say about the state of polling if after the big upset in 2016, Trump manages to actually pull it off and win this election again? Uh, it, it's it's why I'm going to tell people I'm a communication analyst, not a pollster. If uh, if polling gets it wrong again, then the, then the industry, at least for politics, is done. You can get it wrong once. And it was the exit polling that got it wrong. And none of the networks want to acknowledge it. I put out a tweet on election night of 2016 that said Hillary Clinton's going to be the next president. I was really blunt about it because exit polling had never been more than 4% off. And it was off in both 2000 and it was off in 2004. It was wrong. It got the overall number for Clinton correct, but it was wrong in the state by states. And it's the numbers that the network had at 5 p.m. So you can only go based on, on that research. But if they get it wrong a second time and Trump does win, I think it's going to be uh, very much the end of public polling in a political situation. Yeah. And just uh, I, I want to talk about language quickly because I know that's your that's your thing. Um, I listened to uh, quite an old interview you did with Terry Gross uh, at NPR okay, back in 2007. I hated that interview and I need to acknowledge that there were moments in that interview that I was going to walk out. I was so angry. Really? She helped me sell so many books that as much as she just kept attacking and attacking and attacking, and I thought it was meant to be a chance to talk about what I discovered about language. Mm -hmm. And instead it was, I felt like it was an inquisition. My book went to number three at that point. It actually got to number two on Amazon. I owe her for that, mm. but it was the most unpleasant exchange that I've ever had with a journalist. She de she definitely questioned you pretty pretty intensely on on some of the some of the language that you that you sort of conceptualize and put forward for Republicans. Um, but there was one one part that struck me uh, when you spoke about tone and political messaging, and you were speaking about how a reasonable message is a winning one. And you actually, at one point, you were criticizing environmentalists for using language that you said was divisive, polarizing extreme, and alienates the mainstream of public opinion. Now we have a politician, Trump, who has really achieved great success in leaning into that sort of divisive, polarizing extreme rhetoric. And his political identity is built on sloganeering, whether it's build a wall, make America great again. But the message is not really one of unity or one that appeals to the mainstream. Do you think your theory and your analysis of what's successful in politics from that interview, does that still hold? I mean, do you even still still feel that? I feel this more strongly than ever. And that it is absolutely possible to do it is just more difficult in the current environment. And it requires things like, instead of making a statement, ask a question. Uh, instead of being declarative, be rhetorical. Instead of saying, I think you're wrong, ask the question, are you sure you're right? Uh, instead of saying, never forget, say, always remember that there's a way to do this. There's a way to be impactful in a positive way. It just takes more work. And none of my colleagues are doing this, that the people who are still working in campaigns are trying to figure out how negative you can go. And I have taken a different approach in the policy work because I do a lot of research 
and a lot of messaging for, for companies and for policies. Uh, I'm begging them, take the positive approach. I'll give you an example, education. If you keep telling people how bad schools are, they'll turn off because they won't know what to do and it depresses them. But if you tell them how good schools could be if you make the right decisions, not only will they embrace you, but it's a great call to action. So I've actually discovered even more precise than, than the research I was doing a dozen years ago, how to make people want to act. And I've done this on climate issues and I never use the word climate anymore. Reuse, repurpose, recycle. That there's the idea of a circular economy that we can achieve the same goals on climate without ever mentioning the word climate because for a half the population, let's say 40% of the population, the moment you say climate change, they turn off. And I've devoted myself to coming up with language that will get people to address the issue of climate without ever having to say that word in education, without ever condemning a teacher or condemning schools to want parents to aspire to more. It is much harder to do. It takes me on my laptop a lot longer, a lot greater of an effort, but it's worth it because I don't want to contribute to the negativity. I don't want to contribute to the divisiveness. And it's one of the reasons why I, I now, which I did not do before, but I now believe I have to call out my side or I have to try to approach it where there are no sides and basically call out both sides when they step over the line. Do you think that message, a more positive one as opposed to Trump's one, is one that the Republican Party will adopt after the president leaves office? Let's say it's in January. I don't know. And I don't know if I've got the... I don't know if I've got the health to try to do. If this had been four years ago, I would be fighting this. And I'd say, absolutely, mm -hmm. and I'm going to figure it out. I want to be the person who does figure it out. Quite frankly, I want to teach now. I, and I'm tired of, I, I'm lucky that I'm here. I'm lucky that you're asking me these questions. And this is, a what you're doing is really good. Because you're giving me the chance to be heard. Uh, and you disagree with some of this. I know you do. Mm -hmm. But you're giving me the chance to express a point of view, and that doesn't happen in journalism anymore. And it did not happen uh, in that NBC town hall. Uh, it's what I want to do because I, I'm trying to some degree to address the things that I wish I had not done. Uh, and it's not that my idea, my ideology has changed, but I know that my approach has completely changed and that what I do going forward is going to be a positive approach to all of these. It's still going to articulate the idea of, uh, of a better education system. It's still going to articulate support for economic freedom. But instead of demonizing socialism, I'm going to promote economic freedom. Instead of uh, demonizing critics of, of some company that I work for, I want to promote the employees and pro promote the communities that they serve. I, I really think we need to inject a level of positivity into our communication because if we don't, this ugliness that exists that you would acknowledge that exists will get even worse. And at some point it'll swallow us up. Frank Luntz, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Frank Luntz on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.